Well, if you've ever started a new job, you know the pressure built in of starting a new job. Some of the fears that you have when you walk into a new job, particularly if it's a new job and you are leading other people, particularly if it's a new job and there is, has been challenge and dis, a, a disgruntledness and tension that happens in that company or that p- place of work. So when you start a new job, one of the great temptations is to do what? Make a splash. Man, you've got to prove yourself when you start something new. You've got to prove yourself maybe to your boss, maybe to your colleagues, maybe to the team that you're leading to show your worth, to show your moxie and who you are. But if you have ever done that, if you've ever taken that plunge and you've tried to make a big splash up front and made a huge decision, you might have stepped into a hornet's nest because maybe you just don't know the people and the culture and have spent enough time observing to make that kind of call, but you feel the pressure to do that. Ever been there? Ever been in a new job situation? Some of the best advice I've ever gotten in starting a new job in a new place, especially amidst something that was hard with people that were hurting was just breathe. Just stop and breathe and observe and love people and walk with people and figure out who the people are. Build trust before you make a big splash. Great advice. You ever been there? Been on either side of that? Well, this morning we come to, again, the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2, and we see that Nehemiah has got a new job. He's been the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, but he's got a new job. He's got the job of building the wall in Jerusalem, and so how's he going to do? He's not only got a new job, he's got a people that are disgruntled, who are discouraged because for 140 years they've been trying to rebuild, the Jews have been trying to rebuild this wall in Jerusalem because it's been in rubble. So he's got a hefty task with the workforce that he's got in front of him who don't know him. How will he do? Will, how will he lead? Will the people follow him? How will he motivate them to work? And how will he respond to opposition from without and from within? Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 9 through 20 this morning. If you've Don't have a Bible with you. The words will be up here. But if you'd like to follow along, I'd encourage you to do that. We open our Bibles here. We want you to read it. We want you to follow along. Uh, Page 399. There should be a Bible near you if you need it this morning. We've already seen this godly leader in Nehemiah. We've seen his heart, his burden for the people of God. We've seen him pray to the God of heaven. We've seen him take courage and go to the king and ask to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. And we've seen yes all the way through this. And here he comes this morning. What will his influence be on the people of God? So this morning we see the influence of a godly leader. So I want to show you that, his influence on the people of God. And I just think today as I look at this, there's so much relevancy to leadership today as I look at this passage. And what does it look like for us to lead people in a godly way, to be an influence for the kingdom of God in people's lives that are broken down. The walls, if we just using that term, not only physically, but thinking about our own lives, the walls of people's lives is, are busted down, and how are we going to be a part of rebuilding it? And so we come to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me read verses 11 through 16, and we'll pick it up there. 11 through 16 in God's Word, chapter 2 of Nehemiah. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then I arose in the night 
And I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night, looks like moonlight, by the valley gate and the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected, underline that, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and in its gates had been destroyed by fire, and then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for even an animal to go under to pass. It's destroyed. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned, and the officials didn't even know that I had gone and, or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. The first thing that you see about Nehemiah this morning is that a godly leader patiently observes and prayerfully plans before taking action. A godly leader patiently observes and prayerfully plans before he takes action. Look at this patient observation. It's taken him four months to go from the capital of Persia, Susa, three to four months, to go 800 miles to get to Jerusalem. And the text says he doesn't get to work immediately. It says what? It says he was there for three days then. So he spent three days. What does he do in those three days? One of the difficulties of a narrative passage is you don't know right here, but the rest of the book, I think, will help us understand what he was doing in those three days. And then it says in the end of those three days, he arose at night. Why would he go in secret? It seems real secretive here that he would go out at night. Well, there's opposition. Remember, last week we said there's opposition in the land. There are governors that govern Judah under this vassal state that the Persians occupy, but there's some ringleaders of some different groups of people. There's opposition there, so he doesn't want them to see him. He wants to inspect the walls and not make a fuss. I think the other reason he does it at night, and he doesn't even tell the Jewish officials He's a new leader in a new place. He's never been there. He wants to get boots on the ground, eyes on the ground, and make his own assessment. Because surely the people of Israel would say, well, here's what we think should happen here, and here's how we think we should rebuild the wall here. He wants to get his own take on the wall. So there's patient observation. He sees the extent of the damage. In some places, the wall is so damaged that you couldn't even get an animal through it. So he doesn't even inspect. You see a lot of details here. He inspects most of the north and west portion of the wall, but he can't even get to some of the areas of this wall. It is completely destroyed, but you see patient first, patient observation. And then you see careful, prayerful plans. Do you see it there? You see it there in verse 12, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. He observes, he's patient, and then he plans. And you don't see all of the plans right here of what he's planning before he goes to the people of God and tells them generally and motivates them. But in chapter 3, which you're going to see next week, all of a sudden you see all this organization. I don't think that just happened. I think in the three days that he is there, I think he's planning. He's meeting people. He's looking at people and saying, they'd be great for this portion of the wall. They'd be great for ditch digging. They'd be great for taking the bricks or the 
wood and doing this section. I think he's observing. He's people watching. He's looking at the wall. He's assessing the situation. And in chapter 3, you're just going to magically see all this organization. These people coming over here to the wall doing this thing. Other people on a different portion of the wall. There's organization, and I think that's what he's doing all up front. He didn't get there, y'all. He didn't get there and say, hey, just unload all the timber that we got from Lebanon and just throw those, the pieces of wood on the wall. Well, where do we do it? How do we do it? doesn't matter. Just get to work. That's not the way Nehemiah leads, even though there's work to do. A few years ago when Hurricane Harvey hit, not sure how that was felt up here. I was on the west side of Houston, lived on the west side of Houston near the Beltway and I-10, and our church was at Belt. if you've ever been down to Houston, Beltway 8 on the west side, north and south, east and west, you've got I-10. Our church was right here. Attic's Reservoir was right here. Like a par five from our church, like 600 yards from our church. And they had let out water both in that reservoir and the other one in Katy, Barker Cypress Reservoir in Katy. And it all came down into Buffalo Bayou. And we had, I think, I got some help over here, we might remember, 25 to 30 families that lived along the Buffalo Bayou whose homes were flooded just in our church. Some of those homes were underwater for a week, a week and a half, like 10 foot of water. Brutal situation. But then we began to mobilize our church and even brought other churches to help muck out homes. Once the water subsided, we got into those homes. And our strategy was, we're going to go help these people and we're going to muck out their homes. And then we're going to help their neighbors because they have a relationship with their neighbors and man, that meant a lot of planning. That meant a lot of work. And they dubbed me and said, hey, you're going to be the per point person for all these teams to go muck out homes. Y'all, that was a ton of planning. I couldn't just go, hey, go get your shovel and your dehumidifier and get to work. We had to plan and consider. We had a shop set up at the church. We had multiple leaders set in multiple places. Heck, you couldn't even get across Buffalo Bayou in some places north and south to get to places that were normally five minutes away in the first two weeks because all the bridges on these roads were washed out. You had to travel an hour all the way to the Beltway and come back around to go what was normally five minutes. And so we had all kinds of logistical challenges. We were trying to pair groups of people on the south side of Buffalo Bayou, on the north side of Buffalo Bayou. You head spinning yet? We had to have trucks loaded with all the right equipment and all the right things. I spent mornings, early mornings and late evenings planning, okay, I'm going to put these people on this hound today. We got six homes that we're working on right now. I've got to have these people over here and these people over here. I've got, we've got to get them supplies. Like there was tons of observation and planning that went in so that we could mobilize and help people in the name of Jesus. You know, we tend to look at things and say, well, some things are sacred and some things are just secular. And I think some things are sacred. 
But good planning is just part of leadership. Good observation is just part of leadership. Jesus said it in this way. He was even talking about counting the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 14. He's like, hey, you need to count the cost. He said, if you were going to go and build a tower, would you not consider how much money you have and supplies you have before you do it? No, you would. You wouldn't get, because you would get halfway through building a tower and you would run out of money and you would run out of supplies. You've got to count the cost. And then he turns and gives another parable. He says, if you're a king and you go out to battle and you only have 10,000 troops and you observe first, how many troops does the, other peop- the, the, the enemy have? They had 20,000. You're going to go out and make peace. You're going to be wise. You're going to plan. You're going to consider beforehand. Listen, I think in life, I think in ministry and in life, we often operate in a different way. We, we operate in what I call a shoot, fire, aim, right? We shoot, fire, and then aim. And we think we do that in ministry sometimes as well. We shoot, fire, and aim rather than assessing. And some of you are big planners in here right now. You're going, preach it, pastor. We've got to have a lot of planning going on. We've got a lot of things. The other mistake that we make is we just plan and plan and plan, and we never pull the trigger. And we just sit in our plans because it's a whole lot easier to have good plans and nobody's critiquing those plans. And it's a lot easier just to have thoughts and, and not take action. Man, in what ways, let me ask you, in what ways and in what places do we need, do you need to think prayerfully and consider and plan more before you act? And it may be just as simple as like relationally with your spouse. You can start there. But it may be if, you're ser- if you serve, for example, let's apply it to ministry, if you serve in the church and you're a community group leader and you know the walls are down in somebody's life or people's lives in your community group, man, maybe that's a place to start. Instead of continuing to go week by week and ignoring where the walls are down in the people's lives and you're a shepherd of that group, maybe we need to press in and care for people, maybe we didn't press in and create better structure for our community group, better consistency. Maybe if you're a ministry leader, some of you in here are ministry leaders at different places in our church, it's your responsibility, even as a lay leader, to lead men's or women's or students. Are you planning ahead? Are you thinking ahead? We need to be patient observers and prayerful planners. And there's a place for that, but at some point, Nehemiah's got to do something. At some point, Nehemiah's got to communicate the plan to the people of God who are discouraged. How did he do that? Look at it. Look at verse 17 and 18. Let's read it. I think the words are up here. Then I said to them, this is the people of God. He's in Jerusalem. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God had been upon me for good and also the words that the king spoke to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. If you're just reading this for the first time, it's like, oh, he's just a good leader. He, he does a few things and they build. I said it earlier and I'll say it again. For 140 years, 140 years, Jerusalem was in rubble. The wall had not been built back. It was destroyed in 586 B.C. That's two generations of people that have only seen a wall down, okay? 
many of the people had come out of exile to come back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and with Ezra before to rebuild the wall. They'd never even been to Jerusalem because they were born in exile. They had heard stories about the greatness of God in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and how Jerusalem for a Jew was a city of God. It was a place of worship where God's name was made great where God's name was a light to the nations. They'd heard about it, they'd heard stories, but they'd never been there. And so you got people for 100 years who had not seen this success. And you got Nehemiah, born in exile. These people have never met him. He's never been there. He's been hanging out at the palace, y'all, even though he's a Jew in exile, hanging out, eating the fruit of the king, King Artaxerxes. And he comes in as the new guy what are you thinking if you're in Jerusalem and you've been there most of your life and you've been persecuted and you know God wants his house restored and you know he wants his walls restored, but all you've ever experienced is trouble. And here comes a new guy, all excited about building a wall. He doesn't know the place. He doesn't know the lay of the land. He doesn't know you. He's been comfortable. He's been in the palace. What's your thought? That's a huge hurdle for any leader to step into. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that you've lived in the Gaza Strip today. All your life, what have you seen? You've just seen conflict and persecution, and some guy comes and says, hey, I'm going to make peace. What's your thought? This is a huge thing for the people of God to come and believe. So here's, here's your second thought your second thought is this, a godly leader stirs the heart of God's people to do God's work for God's great name. Notice he doesn't bring attention to himself. Do you see that in the text? What does he say? Does he say, hey, come with me, I'm going to build? Notice the pronouns that he used, and I'm not talking about those other kind of pronouns. Notice the pronouns, we. You see it? Then I said, verse 17, you see the trouble, we. He ain't been there. We, he identifies with this people. They're his people. And then he says, come, let us, not you. I'm not going to sit in my mobile mini while you guys go and do the work, and I'm going to sit here and have my ties. I'm in this with you, blood, sweat, and tears. Let, we're going to do this, us, that we no longer suffer derision. Do you see it? He's with them. He identifies with them. For what purpose? For the people? So that everybody can say, hey, you're such a great leader, Nehemiah? No. What does he say? For God's great name. He's not here for himself. He's here for the fame and name and glory of God. That God's house would be rebuilt. That his walls, which yield protection for God's people and for the house of God, that's what he's after. And that's how you lead as a godly leader. You don't point to yourself. You don't point to needs of your own. You point to God's vision, to what God wants to do. And notice what he does. He testifies, doesn't he? He tells the whole story of what he's been through, that he had a burden and he prayed and he went before the king and magically, miraculously, what does the king say? He says, yes, and I guarantee you, if I'm Nehemiah, you know what I'm doing? I'm pulling out the letter. The letter that was written that Nehemiah asked for from King Artaxerxes to say, this wall is going to be rebuilt. 
I'm pulling out the letter, and I'm showing the people of God, King Artaxerxes said we could do it. And then what do they do? They 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 say, arise and work. Let us strengthen our hands to do the good work. Do you notice that word good all the way through the last couple of chapters? The good work of God, God's good hands. That's what we're seeing over and over. God is in this. And that's Nehemiah's selling message, a vision to the people of God. And they arise and they're about to get to work. Now listen, at this point, They're about to get to work. Notice what he does. He doesn't appeal to like what what we could call extrinsic or external motivation, which is fine. Like think about your kids when they're little and you really need your son, your two-year-old to take a bath, but he never does want to. I'll give you candy. Just take a bath. Or you got kids in school, elementary school, middle school, maybe even high school, and go like, I know you don't want to work hard, but I'll give you $20 for every A you make. You ever been there? Whatever it takes. They get to college, like, hey, if you make the dean's list, I'll get you your first car. Business world, you did that, didn't you? (laughs) Make the dean's list. You get out, you're working, you're an adult, looking for that bonus. That's extrinsic, and it works. It's external, but it sometimes is motivating to a degree. But there's also an intrinsic motivation, an interior motivation. Notice what Nehemiah employs. He doesn't say he'll pay them more. He he doesn't give them extrinsic motivation. He gives them intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation. This honors God. This will bring joy to God. This will bring joy to you. It's good. That kind of motivation is long-lasting. Intrinsic motivation. Do you see it there? So let me ask you this morning, what kind of interior, intrinsic motivation drives you to get up in the morning to a broken down world filled with broken down walls in your own life, in the lives of people around you? You have a good God who has given you good work fueled by his good hands to do. Do you know that? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you to be a part of his kingdom, to love your spouse, to raise your kids in the teaching and instruction of the Lord, to serve him, to serve your home and the workplace. See, the gospel is what rebuilds broken down walls in your life and the lives of those that you love and care about who don't know Jesus, whose walls are broken down. There's a beautiful gospel vision for living right here, and let me just say it this way. The marching orders of the church that Jesus left us before he went to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, it's unfinished. The unfinished work of the great commission to make disciples is yours and mine. The walls are down, he calls us to build. Well, here's the deal, if you're the people of God and you're rehearing all the story of how God has been working through Nehemiah. You've got a letter. You've seen the hand of God working. You're probably thinking, man, the coast is clear. God's called us to rebuild the wall. We've had all this opposition for all this time. Now we can just rebuild it, and there's not going to be any trouble, right? 
You could be thinking that because it's clear that God wants you to rebuild the wall now so you get to work. Notice what happens. There's opposition, first thing. You've seen it on the front end of the text. Look at verse 9 and 10. Let's, I'm going to show you verse 9 and 10, verse 19 and verse 20. But on both ends of this text, there's opposition, even though God has called them to do this, and it's crystal clear. It's not all bluebell. It's asparagus, too. It's in there. There's trouble waiting for them in the call of God, even though they're being faithful. What do we do that in our own lives? What do we do with that? Look at verse 9 and 10. We have it here. Then I came to, this is, this is before he leaves, okay? He's already got the go-ahead to leave. He takes off, and look at what he gets. Then I came to the governors of the provinces. So he's left, he's left Susa. He's asked for all these things, and he's on this long journey, and look at what God gives him. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the letters. Now the king had sent with me officers and army and horsemen. I said it last week, but I'll say it again. God gave Nehemiah more than he asked for, and he asked for a lot. Sometimes God gives us more than we ask for. But there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? Sometimes God richly supplies more than we ask or need, and that's a good thing. Like he abundantly blesses, but sometimes he gives us more than we ask for with trouble too, doesn't he? Look at it, verse 10. But when Sanballat, there's a name, the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite servant heard this, these were the governors in the land. If you go back to Ezra 4, if you're with us a couple weeks ago, we said the reason why the walls had stopped being built is because these guys tricked the Persians and said, oh, these Israelites in Jerusalem, they're, all, they're terrible, they're bad, and they, King Artaxerxes stopped the building. Same guys, we think. Sanballat, Tobiah. It, when they come to Jerusalem, into their turf, it displeased them greatly that someone had come, look at these words, to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They didn't like them. Okay, there's the front end of the bookmark. You've got God's blessing but you've also got opposition. That's how the call of God works. It's how the call of God works oftentimes in our life. Let me ask you, when God gives us more than you ask for, you praise him, but what do you do when he gives you more than you ask for as it relates to trouble? Do we praise him then as well? One of the hardest things in life to do, especially the longer you walk with Jesus, is to be able to sing that song we sang earlier. You are good. You are good. Goodness and mercy. Follow me. Because you've lived long enough to see that there's hard in life, there's trouble in life, there's opposition. Some brought on by ourselves and what we do, and other times, what in the world just happened, Lord? Have you come to terms with the fact that the God of heaven has plans for his glory and your good through trouble? Have you come to terms with that? You've got to come to terms that God can use trouble to work good. See also the cross. Think about the opposition that Jesus faced. Think about the opposition that came upon him, that killed him. And yet he died on a cross for that opposition's sin, your sin and my sin. And guess what happened after that? The word of the gospel spread. Go read the book of Acts. And how did it spread? It spread through persecution. It spread through trouble. And it wasn't 
because the people of God were mean and ugly. It was because they were proclaiming Christ as Savior and Lord. So the third thought here this morning is this. Opposition often reinforces the work of God rather than hindering it. And that's what you're going to see here. You're going to see this opposition catapult them forward, not hindering their work. That's the bookend of the text. God gives people more than we ask for, and sometimes more than we bargain for, but he's faithful. Look at verse 19, though, as we put this together. Verse 19. I just want to give you a little character rundown. Sanballat. This sounds like a bad guy, doesn't he? Sanballat, like a heavy metal band with a deep, raspy voice because he smoked too many cigarettes or something. Sanballat. His name, they, we think, literally means sin has given life. Anybody want to name their kid Sanballat? Not a good dude. He's the governor north of Jerusalem in Israel in the, in the area we would know in biblical days of Samaria. He runs that tribe that group of people. And then we see, the next person we see here is Tobiah. Tobiah, think about that name. It's a, it's a Jewish name. He has Jewish roots. So not only is there opposition from outside of, of Israel, there's opposition, in a sense, from within. There's opposition because there's power involved. This is the guy who runs the land northeast of Jerusalem. His name literally means Yahweh is good. The trickster here. This is a guy who has the same roots as the people that he's oppressing or trying to oppress to build the temple of God because he cares more about power. And then the third person in, in here that you see and the third opponent to the work of God here is Gershom, has Arab descent. It looks like from history we know that this guy probably had more power than either of the other two. In the north west region of Israel. And it's interesting because most, of, most scholars don't think these guys were partners, like they just collaborated together. They were probably enemies until the king of Persia, who ran the whole thing, said, these guys can come in to the central city in Israel and restore and rebuild it and rebuild the walls, protection, power, culture. So they banned, I think they banned together against the Jews so they could not have power, so they could not have all the things that these guys wanted themselves. Three different leaders, but notice the nature in verse 19, notice the nature of the opposition. This will preach, listen to this. The nature here, and as we move forward, much of the opposition, the nature of their opposition was verbal. Do you see it? Mean words, trying to get them to stop building verbal threats. They called their work rebellious. They jeered at them. They despised them. When you, when you get to chapter 4, this is how petty, whiny these guys are. When you read the whole book of Nehemiah at once, you're like, man, these are the most petty, whiny, mouthiest guys to try to persuade people to stop work. Like if they were on social media today, they would be the guys behind the keyboards canceling people with their words and trying to discourage people with their words. Soy latte, five-inch inseam shorts. This is what they wore, man. That was, anyway, trying. 
If you're a runner, it's okay. I know we got a couple runners that don't think that's funny. Just don't do it when you, in other places or when you come see me. Anyway, I, I really don't want to, no, okay. I really don't want to see upper, no, no. I could go another place. I'm not going to do it. And in Nehemiah 4, they say, one of the guys says something like this. He says, he goes up to the wall while they're building. And just to picture this, maybe not picture the five-inch shorts. Um, but he's like, y'all are, y'all, a little fox. This is what he says. A little fox could tear up your little wall. Like, silly. But this is what they do all the way through the building project of the wall. They're trying to get these guys discouraged about building. They're trying to create lies and threats to get them to stop doing what God has called them to do. Look at how Nehemiah here, and you're going to see more response as we continue on in the book of Nehemiah, but look at his response here. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, he says, he replied to them. Here he replies. Other places he doesn't reply at all. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants and will arise and build. But you have no portion, no say, or no right, or no claim in Jerusalem. He's saying your your mouthiness does not affect our mission. That God has given us to rebuild this wall. We live in a mouthy day, don't we? We live in a day where people use their words to cancel, to harm, to discourage, to put you in boxes. It's a little different than the day I grew up in, I just got to admit. Um, and there's much that I need to learn. But when, growing up, we had a saying. It went like this, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words don't hurt me. And I know there's probably some therapy that needs to come out of that because words can hurt. But we live in a day today, and I'm kind of confused by it, to be honest with you, especially in the church. We have a different kind of saying, I think. Sticks and stones can't break my bones, but words, they will crush me. They will stop me from doing the mission of God. They will discourage me. That will make me want to come over and make sure we're okay. And make sure that my witness is okay with you, unbelieving world. I don't get it. Maybe somebody can help me with it. Man, I'm all for a good witness. I'm all for what the Bible says that we ought to do with our words, that we ought to have seasoned words with salt, that it might give opportunity for people to believe. That's what Colossians says. Don't take what I'm saying to say I ought to be mean to people that don't believe and call them to repentance in ugly ways. That's not what I'm saying. I'm all for good witness. I'm all for gentle words. I'm all for being the light of the gospel as a church and as a community and as an individual to my neighbors. I'm all for being compassionate to people who don't know Jesus, who are walking in darkness as I was and as you were at some point in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But what I think is happening or has happened is that we 100% Look at our witness before an unbelieving world and say, I'm worried about your response to me. Your response to me, if it's negative, means that I'm not doing it right as a Christian. 
And I'm saying that's a terrible way to look at your witness. Because Jesus says, you will have trouble. As kind as you are, and as thoughtful as you are, the gospel is an offense. It doesn't mean you have to be offensive, but the gospel itself is an offense. What I see in this text with Nehemiah is moxie. I see moxie. I, think, I see a thick skin. He just keeps on going. And this is what he's going to do all the way through this book. He keeps on pursuing the mission of God and ignores the mouthiness. And there is a sense for you and me living in post-Christian world that uses words and is offended by words that the church sinks back and the church doesn't pursue her mission, that Jesus has left us because we're so caught up in pleasing the world. We're so caught up and we're so worried, truthfully, if we get down to it, we're so worried about what people will think of us. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm just saying that when it comes to the mission of God, we pursue it. And we love people where they're at. But their take on the mission of God is not going to dissuade us to carry out the mission of God, the great commission, the gospel work that he's called us to, and how we engage in a world around us. You're not going to win all friends and influence all people. You're going to have, if you're doing it right, you're going to have pushback. Because the gospel does offend. Think about it. I mean, think about all the imperatives in this book for your life. And so when that is shared with people, there's tension there. There was tension for me when I was an unbeliever. And my friends who love me deeply came to me with the truth of the gospel. That, By the way, I'd heard all my life but rejected. There's tension there, and you cannot escape the tension. But here's what happens in the church, and I'm preaching now. But I'm watching networks and denominations and groups of people and churches conflate the gospel. I'm watching whole movements of the church sink back because words, we need to remember our mission. We need to remember what Jesus has called us to and not worry so much about what the world thinks of us. Yes, it matters how we do it seasoned with salt, with grace and compassion. We have a mission, and we need to pursue it like Nehemiah did and move on. And I need to move on. Moxie, thick skin. How's your moxie? How's your thick skin? Do we care too much about the world thinks? Do we have the wisdom to know the difference? Listen, um, Nehemiah, this is some good stuff here, isn't it? Nehemiah, as a godly leader, he's patiently plans. He prayerfully considers. He communicates a God-sized vision for why the people of God who are discouraged need to get to work, need to pick it up, pick up their shovels and get to work. But he also has moxie to face the opposition that's going to be around him all the way through this book, all the way through. When I think of Nehemiah, I can't help but think of an earthly leader, lived a long time ago, lived during World War II, the prime minister of England who had to deal with Hitler, Winston Churchill, know him, read his biography. Winston Churchill, that's a rough hand of leadership. You're the prime minister of England and Nazi Germany is just taking over Europe 
and they're coming your way. But I want you to see the, the parallel between Winston Churchill and Nehemiah. He stood in the gap, man. This guy rallied a fearful, rightfully so, rallied a fearful Britain. I mean, every nation is getting eaten up by Germany. Latest is France. And he's coming to the U.S. president over and over and over again saying, help us. And finally, Teddy Roosevelt gives in and he says to Roosevelt, give us the tools and we will finish the job. Sound familiar? Sounds like Nehemiah before King Artaxerxes. In the first address, as Germany is approaching England to the House of Commons, he says to his own people, think of Nehemiah and the Jews, he says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He's in it with them as the prime minister. He's not ducking out. He's not going to a different place. He's in it with them. He motivates them. He encourages them. And then he gets wind. Churchill had a way. He gets wind that the French, who had already been occupied for about a year, that their generals were making noise and talking bad about Britain because he had said, it doesn't matter. We'll fight these guys alone if we have to. We don't want to, but we'll have to. And he says this. He relays this to his own people, to all his country. He says this. When I warned the French, the British would fight on alone, whatever they did. Their generals told their prime minister and his divided cabinet, in three weeks, England will have her neck wrung like a chicken. Churchill replied, some chicken, some neck. Moxie. Churchill had moxie for his mission. Man, if earthly leaders fighting for earthly things like land and their people can exhibit that much leadership, that much courage in the face of opposition. How much more should we as believers bought with the blood of Jesus who've experienced his lavish grace, equipped for his eternal mission, have moxie for what will last forever? A tenacity for the broken down walls around us, in people's lives. Do you catch that? What's your next move, C3? I know there's no wall of Jerusalem to go be built. I hope you're encouraged and motivated. But maybe, instead of strengthening your hands for the work of God, who are caught by his good hands, by the way, rather than strengthening your hands, maybe you've wrought your hands of the whole thing. Maybe you come to church, but you've wrought your hands of the mission of God because, man, them people in the church, they just, they're just, all they want to do is argue and fight, and you've wrought your hands of being a part of the mission of God. Or maybe you've just put up your hands because you're tired of all the mouthiness of the world, and you've just put up your hands like, I'm not going to go there. I'm tired of being all the conflict and dealing in conflict. Maybe you just put up your hands, or maybe you've just folded your hands. I got other things to do with my hands. I got a job. I got a career. I got a family. I got, I got all kinds of other things. I got to make money. Maybe you folded your hands. And the message of Nehemiah then and to us today is this. And here's your takeaway. Strengthen your hands, C3. Strengthen your hands for the good work of God. He holds you in his strong hands. Let me pray.